You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. We're going to dive right in today. We are uh, continuing on. I don't even need to say that anymore. We're hanging out in Matthew for the foreseeable future. We're going to have a good time here learning about the gospel of Matthew. And so kind of a quick recap last week, we dove into the genealogy of Matthew and and how he, how he wrote out the genealogy and some of the fun points and purposes. How many people got a chance to open up and crack open Matthew this week? Did anybody just dive in there themselves? Good for you guys. Proud of you guys dive in like, hey, we're going to be here for a while. Let's see what we can mine out of this. Let's see what God will show us out of his text. So last week we looked at the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There was a lot of powerful statements that came out just in the very beginning first sentence. Uh, and we saw that this is a different kind of genealogy than you would expect. It's, a, it's for a different kind of a king. It's Jesus is coming and he's pronouncing this good news. This kingdom is good news. His, his kingdom is really good news. And it brings truth and it brings hope and justice and righteousness. This is the good news that Matthew was talking about. And it's a calling for different kind of people, a people who, who want to pursue this faith, hope, and love, a people who want to be generous with their time, their talents, and their treasures. And so today we're going to take a look at an often overlooked character in this story we're going to take a look at Joseph and the role that he was chosen to play in the kingdom of God. What will he choose to do with what God asked of him? So join me as we dive in to the text. We're in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and here we go. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, in case you forgot, the Messiah came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate the marriage until after she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Usually part of the Christmas story we learn and you go and think about the plays that you've been to and Joseph's just kind of the guy standing there. He's off to the side. And so who is Joseph? What can we learn about Joseph? What do we know about him? What can we deduce from the text and to understand about Joseph and his role? And as I studied this more this week and spent time with our sermon club and looked at this, I was like, man, what an amazing man of character. Have you ever heard that uh, 
he's referred to, uh, Jesus is referred to as being a carpenter as his trade, that he had the trade of being a carpenter. And so when you and I think carpenter, there's nothing wrong with being a carpenter, but when you think carpenter, I don't know what you think, um, but I think of like the guys who frame my house. I think of the guys that, that work with wood. I think of the guys that, you know, uh, that, that are just kind of, they're day laborers, they're working hard, they're doing good things, they're building great stuff. And, and that very much could be the case, but the word that we get for carpenter uh, is a little bit more developed uh, than just carpenter. And uh, in the text, the word uh, that is translated to carpenter is tecton. Say tecton. Say architect. Wow, ark. The leader, the, 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 the chief, the, the head of this, tect, the tecton, the chief builder. And so when you learn more about what it means to be a, a, a tecton, it means more than just a, a day laborer, laborer carpenter. This is an artisan. This is a, a craftsman. It's a, it's a builder that, that, that builds things. And it wouldn't that be interesting if Jesus used any building analogies in his stories. Because he was one. And it's interesting, if Jesus grew up in Nazareth with his father, that he would take on his father's trade. How many rabbis would have a trade? That's like they had a trade, they had something else that they did, right? So like uh, Paul was a tent maker, right? So he had a trade that he did. Jesus is a tecton, or he's a carpenter, as we would see that. And so it's interesting, less than four miles northwest of Nazareth, where Jesus spent the majority of his life on earth, is a town called Sephoris, which is the largest city in Judah apart from Jerusalem. And it was only about an hour's walk from Nazareth. So let's take a look at some pictures here. This is a, a general picture. See how much rocks, how many rocks are, are in the ground there? Like Israel, how many people have been to Israel? How many people have taken a rock from Israel? <laughs> like, yes, yes, we just take it like it's part of the deal. You can't, t- you can't touch the pottery. You couldn't take a fragment of pottery. They would arrest you for that. But you can take all the rocks you want because they got them in plenty. And so when you think about this idea of what Jesus would do, let's take a look at Sephora. This is the excavation of the city. This is where this city that was uh, the second largest, and this is just a little piece of it. Uh, this picture doesn't really do a whole bunch of justice of the point I'm trying to get across. It wasn't that forested. Like rocks are the main thing. So when we say carpenter and like I'm a builder and we have lots of wood, wood is not easy to come by. And is, if, how many people, when you went to Israel, that you saw all the beautiful wooden buildings that were built? Like, no, like everything is like stone, like a stonemason and cut and chiseled and all of those things. And so it's very likely that Jesus would have spent a lot of time working with stone. And like the trees and all those things, I was reading up on this, and I was like, this doesn't do a good job saying what I'm trying to say. And then I was reading up, and that since World War I, Israel has planted 260 million trees. And there was 280 forests that they've created because it's a lot of rocks there. And so when you think about Jesus being a tecton, somebody who would work with his hands and that would be discipled by his dad, uh, when he was about nine years old, Herod Antipas uh, initiated a large-scale building program uh, in uh, Sephoris, where, where he would be about an hour's walk away. And so uh, wouldn't you think that the, him and his dad would have a chance to walk to go to work together? And you know, in the Talmud, it talks about if you're in a small town, and there was no rabbi to get advice from, or there was a dis- big decision that needed to be made, and there was no rabbi to get to make that decision, the next 
uh, person you would look for is a tecton. So these are also like, these are wise people. These are people that are making sure that things are, are working well in their community and they're very, very well respected. So when we think about Joseph as just some sort of hopey dopey carpenter, that's probably not the case. So I want to take you on a little journey into this text here and sit with Joseph of what he might be feeling or experiencing. So as we read, it says he's pledged to be married, to marry. So this is an arranged marriage, like most marriages. Do you know like most marriages were arranged until like the 17, 1800s? They like, you wouldn't get to like swipe left or swipe right. Like you don't get to pick who you're good. I mean, you can have a, Katie, what do you think about this person? Eh, he's kind of got a big nose, but whatever. You know, like, they're like, you're going to figure out how to love them. Like, you don't get to the independent choice to choose, make this giant decision in your life. Your family's going to be like, you know what, Josh, I think that Carrie would make a really good spouse for you. We've seen her family and her character of her family and all those things. And, you know, we think that she would make a really good spouse for you. Would you be willing to, would you be willing to marry her? And so when you think about these arranged marriages, here's how it would work. Two men, usually the the fathers, they would establish a legal agreement that would stipulate the transfer of the girl from the father's family to the groom's family. And this this is the modern custom of daddy giving away his daughter at a formal wedding ceremony. And it originates in this ancient practice. And it means like the deal is sealed and final. Now it sounds kind of archaic and I know a lot of us like proud ladies are like, what? I'm not a piece of property. Like you can't do that. Like that's kind of how it was, it feels. But flip it around to a father's viewpoint. When I walked my daughter, Tori, down the aisle, who I had cared for and provided for and loved and protected and like invested in, when I walked her down the aisle, and they said, who gives this man to be, you know, be married to the, or this woman to be married to this man? I was like, I do. Begrudgingly. Don't screw it up, Dylan. No. Like, I'm handing over something that's super, super precious to me. Like, there's references to the bride of Christ. Like, I'm handing over something super precious. And I'm asking Dylan, please take care of my daughter. Please care for her needs. Make sure she doesn't starve. Make sure she's protected. So although the term betrothal or engagement is used to refer as a legal contract, the bride and groom were considered legally bound in marriage at the signing of this agreement. And the only exception, the only difference between them not being married is they wouldn't consummate the marriage or start living together. And to break that contract was equivalent to divorce. So you see this language as we were reading the text, and you're like, well, wait a minute, pledged. Now he's got to give her a certificate of divorcer, like they were married. Like, they're married. They just haven't lived together, and they haven't slept together. But in the eyes of their world, they are, they are, they are married. So to break the contract was equivalent to divorce. And in this case, adultery, particularly on the part of the female the customary punishment was stoning. So there's a lot riding on this. 
So after this formal betrothal process would happen, uh, the bride would remain at her father's home and the groom would return to his father's house in order to prepare a place for his bride to be. So this typically lasted about a year. So you're like, hey, you get to see this great relationship and you're pretty stoked up as a dude because you're probably late teens, early 20s. You're ready to build a family. You're ready to go. And you're like, cool, Mary, she's awesome. She's wonderful. Okay, great. I got to go back to my parents' house and I'm going to be there for a year. And I got to build a room onto my parents' house because the way that the living was, communal living, you're going to build a room on their house and your dad would walk out and you've been working on this. You're, you're stacking rocks. Like you're, you're motivated, gentlemen. You're motivated. And your dad comes out and he's looking at it. He's like, tear, tear that part down. That's not going to do. Start over there. And then like two weeks later, he comes back out and oh, that, that's better. But that part, meh. And so he's kind of busting your chops along the way. And this is a year that you're waiting to get your bride. You're already pledged to be married, but you're ready to go. And this is a year that you're waiting to get your bride. This is Joseph. This is where he's at. He's excited. He agreed to, to, to marry Mary. He's excited to marry her. And so he, he's, maybe, maybe dad was like, good enough. Let's do it. And he's just like, Pew! gone. He's going to go see his bride. And he goes and he sees his bride. He's been working and working and working and building and they're dreaming about what their family's going to be like. Have his American dream, his Israeli dream. Highly anticipated moment. Here's what he runs into. Verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged, betrothed, to be married to Joseph. Off and running. But before they came together, physically, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine how Joseph would feel? upon coming to Mary's house and finding out that she's pregnant. How many times has an immaculate conception happened up to this point? How many of you are likely to buy that idea if your teenage daughter were to come home and say, hey, I'm good. I don't know what happened. Like, this is a difficult deal, right? Like, so he's like, I just can't imagine, like, the feelings that Joseph is going through. How, how would he feel? How might you feel? Would you maybe feel betrayed? Would you be disappointed? Would you be angry? Verse 19 it says, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, some translations say was a righteous man, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. And he had in mind to divorce her quietly. That's huge. He's crushed. He's broken. He could crush her. He could make a mess out of her family. This is embarrassing. 
This is all of these things. It's embarrassing to him. He might be under suspicion. Oh, she just happened to be pregnant. What, did you sneak over here? Like, he is crushed. But he decides to offer something that's better than what she would deserve under the law. In Deuteronomy 22, if you read that, she deserves, according to their customs, to be stoned, to be, to be killed, taken to the, her father's front door, and then the village people, they will stone her for being unfaithful. What would this public divorce mean for Mary if it was public? It would mean that she would be a single mother and unlikely to ever be married again. Jesus would be a, what they call a mamzer or a mumzer. He would be a something child, some rhymes with turd. And he, would be, he wouldn't be eligible to be uh, able, he'd be unclean. And he wouldn't be eligible to go to the temple and worship with all the other good Jewish boys. He would be unclean. When Mary's parents died, she'd have no means of support And it's very likely that her life as well as that of her child would have been cut short. So just to divorce her quietly was a gift among gifts from Joseph. It shows that Joseph is a great man of compassion. He's crushed, but he obviously doesn't want Mary's life to end. He does not want to bring public shame. And this is a culture uh, of, of, of shame and, 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 and guilt. And he doesn't want to bring that upon her or her family. So that's a super amazing gift just right there to divorce her quietly. And this was a good and kind thing to do. She didn't get what she deserved. But God calls him to something even more. And I wonder if Joseph, who probably knew of the text and knew the text pretty well, I wonder if he had seen any acts of compassion before. I wonder if maybe that's why there's some names in the lineage that we have here that you're looking back at that we looked at last week, and they're like, oh, wait a minute. Is there anything that's tying together between some of these names and this lineage that happened in the back? And one of the things that tied it together for me as I read different uh, uh, translations was this, this saying that he was a righteous man, so he decided to divorce her quietly. And I was like... Why do I think, why is there a connection of righteousness? And I went back and I was reading the story that I talked to you guys about last week. How many people went to Genesis 38 and read the story of Tamar last week? No? Okay, good. You can do it this week. I'm not reading it to you. Um, No, but so Tamar was in this lineage. And Tamar, uh, quick story, she was, uh, she was uh, supposed to be married to Judah's oldest son. And that guy was so great that God killed him. And then the tradition says that the next son would come along and he would uh, provide an heir for his brother. And the next son came along and he did the stuff to try and provide an heir for his brother, except at the very last second he didn't. And he was using her. And then the dad was, uh, and then he died. And then the dad was like, oh yeah, well my youngest son gets old enough, I'll send him to marry you. You go back to your father's house as a widow and I'll send him to marry you later. And so she goes back to her father's house And she's in mourning clothes for all this time. And guess what Judah doesn't do? He doesn't send anybody back to her. She's living not a great life. And so he shirks his responsibility of taking care of someone. And he had, you know, maybe he he didn't have the right to do it. He didn't even have the right to do that. Joseph had the right to do it. But Joseph doesn't shirk that responsibility after God talks to him. 
And I guess the thing that connected those to me for is at the end of the story, uh, Tamar goes and she's sitting at a temple gate and wears a veil, which apparently appears to be a prostitute. And Judah's wife had passed away. And so he made a deal with her to lay with her and she became pregnant. And that's where we get Perez and Therese, these twins, right? And so they, he finds out that a word gets back to him that his daughter-in-law, somehow it's his daughter-in-law who got sent home to be with her parents, his daughter-in-law uh, is pregnant outside of wedlock. Is that a connection here again? Oh, yeah. Preg- pregnant outside of this. And they're looking at this going like, what? Why is this happening? He's like, yeah, burner. Is what Judah says, burner. And what does Joseph say? I have in mind to divorce her quietly. And Judah says, burner. And the thing that connected them to me was this. Judah recognized, so they come back and he's like, and she, and she very quietly said like, well, whoever's the father gave me this staff and these cords. And everybody was like, Judah? You're the father? The guy who said burner? And here's Judah's response. He said, she is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I. And I was connecting that to Joseph as him being righteous that he wanted to divorce her quietly and to give her a chance at a life and not to embarrass her or shame her, even though he had the right to do it. Do you guys know, even though you have the right to do something, does that mean that you should? Even if it's true about somebody, there's a saying called Lashon Hara, which is like speaking ill or speaking badly about somebody. But like, even if it's true, should you say it? How is that building the kingdom? And so as you think about Joseph and his righteousness and him wanting to do the right thing, what's interesting is God calls him to even more. He's like, that's the right thing to do to be compassionate, but I'm going to call you to more. And here's what he says. But after he had considered this, Joseph, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Do you think Joseph knew of this prediction? Do you think he's just like, wait a minute, like I've heard of this before. This is me? Like, neither of us have done anything wrong, and we're in a real pickle here. But this is me? I get to be, like, would he know about the writings of Isaiah? Seems like he would. This is me? Could he just be in total shock and disbelief that he gets to participate in the coming of the Messiah? He gets to be, he has the responsibility of being the caretaker of baby Jesus. This is his moment. This is his chance. And he has a part to play. So when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as as his wife. Did it all go great there then? He took her home. They were like, hey, cool. No room here for you. Like it didn't go great. Oh, you couldn't control yourself, Joseph. I see that your wife is pregnant. We haven't even had this great ceremony. Like he took on a bunch of shame and problems and all these things. But you know what Joseph was more concerned about? He is obedient. Joseph, he he is obedient and he acts on the Lord's commands. And it's almost like he was worried more about obeying God 
than how the other people would perceive him. He was like God first and me later. Joseph is obedient and acts on the Lord's commands. Joseph is compassionate. He's obedient. And we see this a couple more times from Joseph in Matthew chapter 2, where he acts immediately upon what God asked him to do. Chapter 2, verse 13 in Matthew says, uh, When they had gone, uh, an angel of the Lord had appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up and take this child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay up there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Yeah, just cruise on over to Egypt. It's just, you know, 140 miles. Really beautiful terrain, by the way, too. So he got, he got up and he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. He gone. Immediate obedience, where he stayed until uh, the death of Herod. So uh, it was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet, out of Egypt I will call my son. See, Joseph is the earthly protector of Jesus, his adopted son. And it didn't matter all the shame and all the stuff that was going to come at, come at Joseph for that. He's more concerned about doing God's will than he is about his, what everybody else thinks about him. I could use a dose of that. Again, we see him being obedient again in chapter 2, verse 19 through 23. After Herod had died and an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, he said, get up and take this child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who are trying to take this child's life are dead. So he got up and negotiated with God and questioned him and said, are you sure? No, he did it immediately. He was obedient to God. And he went to the land of Israel, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea, the place in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, near Nazareth, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Joseph is, has a big role in helping fulfill a bunch of different prophecies that are happening that were talked about Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior. So I guess I ask you guys, what are some of the characteristics that you observe in the text and that you see about Joseph and how he handles himself? Is there anything that you could take away from the text today? What would it look like to be obedient to the Lord? Do you know what his voice sounds like? Are you in relationship with him? Joseph is a man of compassion in the face of what the world says the right things to do. He chooses God over himself. He puts self down here. He puts the kingdom of God up here. Where do you sense the Lord urging you to be more compassionate to his people? Where do you need to maybe lay down some of your rights and seek what the will of God is. Joseph is so obedient and he acts immediately on the Lord's commands. You know, what does your listening and acting look like with the Lord? What is he telling you to do this week? Well, I already know I got my schedule booked out. No, like, what if he changes your schedule? I was having a conversation this week with a friend of mine and, uh, he called me out on something, and it was, it, was, it was pretty good. And he didn't really know he was calling me out on something. 
uh, the Lord convicted me in the process. And I was like, oh, I'm studying this thing about acting and being uh, obedient. And I knew I was supposed to call him about four months ago. I was driving home and I was like, oh, I need to call this person. I don't know why I need to call this person, but like, I know I need to call this person because the Lord told me to call this person. I didn't have anything particular to say. I just kind of a checkup on him and I didn't call him. I didn't call him because I looked at my phone and then there was a message from somebody else and a text message from somebody else and a text message from somebody else and, and I got lost and I wasn't obedient to the Lord on a tiny little thing as a phone call. And that person needed to hear from me. And I wasn't there. Even on the tiny things, like this is obviously something massive, but even on the tiny things in your life, are you able to be obedient to what God would call you to do? Lastly, Joseph is an earthly protector of Jesus, his adopted son. What are you called to care for in the kingdom of God? Ladies and gentlemen, who are you, what are you called to protect in the kingdom of God? What about God's reputation? How do we protect his reputation? And how we view people and how we care for people. What is the rep- rep- reputation of real life? What's the reputation of the company that you work for or that you own and what does it look like to shine a bright light onto who God is see we have something to protect we protect the image of God we're image bearers and people are looking and they're wondering what does a Christian look like what do they do how do they act Who are you called to care for and protect in the kingdom of God? What are you called to care for and protect in the kingdom of God? Ask yourself that question. As we sit during this time, you think about Joseph and the things about Joseph that we we can uncover about him and learn about him. He took a bold step. He and Mary did nothing wrong. Mary looked like she deserved something and he didn't give her. He had this thing called like compassion and grace and mercy and love and all those things. And then he continued to be obedient. There is so much to learn from a real short section of scripture about Joseph and his character. Pray with me as we think about what does that mean for us in our lives. Father God, I just ask for your hand upon all of God, all of your people here that you would reveal to folks in here stuff that I missed. You'd reveal things uh, to people in here about the character uh, of Joseph and how it shines a light on who the character of his adopted son was. That you would give us the compassion that he had for Mary. That we would maybe give people a little less of what they deserved and more of your compassion and your love. We'd be people who would be moved by you. And we would know you well enough to where you would just say go and we would go. Here I am, Lord, send me is our prayer. That your will would be done, not our will be done. Father, move through this text in this body. Move through this text in this church. Change us, transform us, Lord. Make us more like your people. Lord, make us more like Joseph. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take this time to go to communion. 
We get the privilege of doing this every week. If you missed it on your way in, uh, our guys have it. You can raise your hand. We'll get you some communion. But we've got to come back to the table. We talked about Jesus' earthly father. I see these pictures of, of stepdads that adopt their children, stepchildren. And can you imagine little baby Jesus' finger being held by Joseph? Can you imagine him taking care of him and then walking along the way and him teaching him, knowing that he knows he is Messiah, knowing that he knows that this is the one and that Joseph is protecting him and caring for him? We have somebody who protects and cares for us. He protected and cared for us so much for that this Savior that was in the text who was going to save his people from their sins, amen, started his journey there and he ended his earthly journey here on the cross. And so we're going to celebrate the fact that Jesus cares so much for each and every one of us that he went to the cross for us. So here's what Jesus said. On the, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread that he had given and uh, gave thanks and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus, we remember you. In the same way, after supper, he took this uh, cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. Lord, we know you're coming again. We proclaim who you were and what you did. Again, Father, thank you for this time with... uh, these amazing folks who've braved the cold to come here, Lord. For those that are joining online, that we would just be embracing you, embracing your word, and embracing the change that you would have for us this year as you mold and guide our hearts to learn more about you. We are so grateful. We are so honored. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.